It's off to the Netherlands we go as the Dutch bourgeoisie have overcome the best efforts of the pesky church and the working class to host the Olympic Games. Are you ready to hear about swan songs for past greats, the beginning of Indian hockey dominance, even more dodgy boxing and art judging, and women competing in athletics? I don't believe it. Welcome to Amsterdam 1928. Oh, we've had women at the Olympics. I know, but at this time, like, what do we? I think we have like two hundred and fifty. Like, Amsterdam is swimming in ladies. It is, and in the big events as well, like track and field. Yeah, it's great to have them on board at long last. Let's let's see if it lasts. <laughs> let's see if it lasts, or is this just a phase? <laughs> Roaring twenties, like bringing out the ladies. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's gonna stick, Chris. We'll see. How did Amsterdam get the Olympics, Ruth? Uh, did they apply? Uh, they did. They did <laughs> apply. But they actually didn't want it uh, for 1928. They applied to be the host city in 1921. Uh, it was like a dual vote with Paris, not too dissimilar to what we've seen with Paris and LA uh, in modern times, with both of them mm. being given it at the moment. Yeah, basically Amsterdam had been virtually promised the 28 games when they stepped aside as a favor to Pierre de Coubertin to allow Paris to have the 1924 Olympic Games with uh, the old Baron, the founder of the IOC, about to retire. So they were going to give him the the games in Paris as his uh, final one as IOC president. Yeah, although... They uh, had been given the games well in advance. It wasn't always certain whether they were going to be able to pull it off. Because as I mentioned in the intro, Ruth, we had the pesky church and the uh, the working class rising and doing their own things. And um, money wasn't going to come easy to the Dutch, particularly not from the government. Do you want to know what those, uh, what were they called? The, the Calvinists at the time? That was the, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were the... Uh, the, the religious stronghold in the Netherlands at the time. And they described the Olympic Games as uh, being of heathen character in their origin and essence. I mean, they're not wrong, are they? Like, <laughs> it kind of is. Like, we all know the stories coming out of the modern um, Olympic villages. Yeah, well, but the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, were they predicting what was going like, on? And, and now with 250 ladies, Chris, in the mix. Like, they're not wrong. Despite that, and uh, despite uh, despite the Dutch uh, organizing committee promising to have no events on Sundays, which, as we know from previous episodes, is an important aspect, and uh, that there was going to be no lottery funding, which we saw in Stockholm uh, in 1912, uh, there was still no central government support for the Games. Thankfully, however, these Games were being organized by the bourgeoisie, who had their own contacts had a bit of cash as well. And what they decided to do was to publish an open letter to the entire nation, which was in every single secular newspaper, asking for the Dutch people to support the games, uh, which is a bit like we saw in uh, London 1908, where there was a big influx of money coming in from a newspaper advertisement. And so there were special Olympic chocolate bars being created, the Ooh. proceeds going to the games. Also, we saw the uh, very first collection of Olympic stamps being made by the post office there. So all of that helped the games take place. 
Well, it wasn't just the Dutch government and the church which turned their back on the games, though, because uh, there was another minor controversy when the Dutch queen, Wilhelmina, refused to attend the opening ceremony. Oh, my God, but the royal family always go to the opening ceremony. Almost always. There was one other time they didn't. That was... um, in 1904 because well yeah it was in america but yeah the first time they were with a royal family in the country they didn't attend or the queen uh, didn't attend in this case because apparently she was upset that she wasn't consulted on the date of the opening so because uh, nobody decided to ask her when it should be uh, she decided to go on holiday instead i think she went to norway and decided yeah. not to come back yeah again i'm gonna say i i that seems like oversight on the Amsterdam uh, committee's planning. Like, you, sh- you should you should think of that um, in advance and consult the Queen, you know? Yes, well, we've seen some good so- co- collaboration between the organising committees and the royal families in the past. So, yeah, really, yeah. The, the Amsterdam boys uh, let that one slip. They did. Did anything else happen at the opening ceremony, Ruth? So much, Chris. So much. It was quite a grand affair uh, with airplane flyovers, uh, a return of pigeons. Pigeons seem to have been huge at opening ceremonies in the early ones. Like, and I think personally, let's bring it back. I want to see at least fifty thousand pigeons in. Um, like, it doesn't have to be Tokyo. We'll say Paris. I'd like to like ten thousand. 50,000 pigeons just released. There were also artillery salvos and bands. And we also got our first torch lighting ceremony um, of a cauldron. It was more of a chimney linked up to Amsterdam's main gas supply. And it more kind of smoked during the daytime and you could see a light flame um, in the evening. Athletes from 46 nations were paraded. Uh, they were said to look fantastic. And the Greeks entered first, which was a tradition started in Amsterdam and which continues to this day. The Turks wore fezes. The South Africans wore scarlet blazers. The Germans were said by the New York Times to look like ship stewards, but were praised for their military precision of march. Which And the Germans was- are back! The Germans are back. Sorry, uh-huh. yeah, burying the lead there. The Germans are back <laughs> <laughs> with military precision of march. <laughs> what a surprise! Okay, but there was one nation not in attendance at that opening ceremony. Who do you think it was? Any guesses? Russia. It was France. Yeah. Oh, yeah. why? A couple of days before the ceremony, the French had tried to gain access to the Olympic Stadium for a practice run, which seems to be something that was like very standard. It wasn't like they weren't just being annoying like this seems to be the thing that people were allowed to do um but they were met by a grumpy gatekeeper who just absolutely refused to let them in and according to the historical dictionary of the modern olympic movement this escalated very fast with the gatekeeper coming to blows with the general secretary of the french athletic federation paul Méchamp. the next day the french arrived again to the stadium and we're disgusted to discover that this grumpy old man who enjoyed punch-ups with foreign dignitaries was still di- there, undismissed. <laughs> and they threatened not only not to attend the opening ceremony, but actually to pull out of the Olympics altogether. Things were eventually cooled down when a former Dutch foreign minister delivered a bottle of champagne and an apology to the French camp. Oh. But they still didn't attend the opening ceremony. I mean, maybe because one bottle of champagne and there were like 255 athletes, not including, you know, the officials and the coaches. Like, it's a bit... That's at least a case of champagne job. 
Well, look, Pierre de Coubertin leaves for two seconds and this happens. I don't believe this it. happens. Because of that, they didn't um, they didn't attend, but I, they were happy to compete then afterwards. It was just the opening ceremony. I imagine what happened was the apology came too late for them to attend. But then they were like, okay, grand, we'll stay. Like, it's not that big a deal. He just punched the general secretary of the French Athletic Association. <laughs> it's not that big a deal. I'm not going to say he deserved it, but I don't know. Descendants of Paul Mary Camp, get in touch if you wish. <laughs> Did he deserve it? I really like the stadium, which was built in like a reclaimed part of the city, like to the south. Like it was, this is part of like an exercise in urban planning, I think, according to David Goldblatt, the author of the games, built specifically for the games, 30,000 seat capacity, had the cycling track around uh, on the outside, um, a 400 meter athletics track for the very first time which would then become the standard around the world. Then there was a pitch in the middle for football, ball, and uh, gymnastics. And at night, uh, the stadium was lit up by electric light as well. So there were soft yellow beams up against the outside of the stadium. So a lot of effort going into uh, the stadium as well as the opening ceremony. And the Dutch absolutely loved these games. They really took to it captured the imagination of the public there were some sports in particular which drew huge crowds Mm. and you can really get the feeling now that the olympics are a genuinely important thing uh, which was definitely wasn't the case in the first few episodes but now you get the feeling that it's actually making uh a big impression on the people in the country. Yeah. Now, one of the things was they did build the stadiums on marshland. It did mean that when the athletes went for trial runs on the athletics track, they said it was a little bit too soft for an international competition. Ooh. And the the Dutch authorities had to scramble to get them firmed up a bit. Mm. And um, things were a little worse at the uh, swimming stadium where one end of the pool sank six inches. <laughs> Which, I mean, like six inches is only six inches, but like it's not something you're, you'd particularly want. You know, six inches can very soon become, you know, a sinkhole. <laughs> but how, like, what? How, did, how, why? Like, what did it look like then? So just, well, one side of it, like the whole thing tipped to one side by six uh, inches? You got to give us some more info here. Yes. <laughs> what did this look like? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, this, it's, this, this, this came from a very authoritative source. Um, like, un, unlike some of our sources, this genuinely came from a very good source. So I believe it. But then there was no more reference to it. So I imagine it was grand. Like, it, it wasn't, you know, an insurmountable <laughs> issue. But, um, yeah, the, the okay. six inches. There you go. Oh, we'll go to the, the pool in a bit. But before we do that, I think it's good to stick with the track. And um, because I think one of the biggest stories of the Olympics was the emergence of women. The women finally getting on the track and field uh, for the first time in the, uh, I was going to say in the modern games, but in all games, because in the ancient Olympics, there were no women allowed as competitors or as spectators so we've come a long way but as we spoke about in the last podcast it's actually been a a movement that had been happening for a few years uh, we had the women's olympics taking place uh, earlier in the 20s with the success of these games the international uh, athletics federation finally gave in and allowed the women to compete in 
a few events. There were a couple of standout athletes uh, in the few events there were. And I think probably the biggest story comes from the 800 meters. Yeah, where not everything went so smoothly. It was won by Germany's uh, Lena Radke, with Japan's Kinui Hitomi taking silver and Sweden's Inga Gensel taking bronze. There are different accounts on how this wet race went down. According to some reports of the 11 finalists, five collapsed before the finish line, five immediately after, and one as soon as she arrived into the changing room. Male spectators and officials were horrified. A journalist from and uh, said it was a pitch the what? Uh, from the <laughs> uh, that's clearer uh, is, it, is this a Dutch paper by any chance okay, okay. yes it is <laughs> it was a pi- so the journalist from the Mashbude said <laughs> it was a pitiful spectacle to see their girls tumble down after the finish like dead sparrows the distance is far too strenuous for women but I imagine he said it a lot more Dutchly but he wasn't on his own with that opinion as another piece from the Telegraph reported the final 800 metre for women was a demonstration of what girls may suffer and win renown as athletes and made a deep impression on me but it left me firmly convinced that it would have been better if it had not been done. And the Daily Mail ended up quoting some doctors they found who said that women who competed in such feats would be subject to premature ageing. So (laughs) it was just not good for your face, ladies. Mm. And the International Amateur Athletic Federation seemed to have agreed with all of these opinions. And they scrapped all women's races... Uh, they considered too strenuous, and it, um, so so these these were you know anything over like they didn't mind a little bit of a sprint for a lady, but anything else they were said no this this is dangerous to their health, and it would take take a deep breath here until the nineteen sixties before we would see another race over two hundred meters in women's athletics at the Olympic Games. I I think this uh, is quite unfortunate for all of the journalists at the time and as a fellow journalist it pains me to uh, give them an early nomination for scumbag of the week Uh, but unfortunately for them there was actually cameras at (laughs) at these games and film uh, is there to actually show us how many athletes competed it wasn't 11 it was nine and uh, nine women started the race and all nine women finished the race. Yeah, of course, after 800 meters, which is undoubtedly one of the most grueling uh, races within track and field uh, in terms of the short to middle distance, because it is this horrendous mixture of sprint endurance being pushed to the very edge. Uh, of course, they were exhausted afterward, particularly as uh, Lena Radke set a world record pace. And according to the film, a few of them lay down and were tired, but none of them actually collapsed from exhaustion or uh, dropped out of the race. So um, there you go. And that's unfortunate that it took 32 years for for the 800 meters to return because the poor women weren't allowed to age quickly. 
need I remind you, back in 1904, Ooh. the winner of the marathon, Thomas Hicks, literally had to be carried over the line. And nobody said after that, we need to cancel the marathon. Actually, I take that back. A lot of people did, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, wait, did they? I think, did they yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think a lot of people didn't believe the marathon should have existed for a long, long time. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> Particularly in the early days. <laughs> but, but the thing is, there have been a lot of like, of times when we should have just cancelled sports for men because it was unhealthy. There was one really nice story from the women's track and field events that I like, though, which is the 100 metres. And Elizabeth Robinson, who was just 16 years of age, and uh, she came from America, and she won the very first uh, track and field gold medal for women. That was while setting the world record for the 100 metres. She also got a silver in the 4 by 100 relay. And uh, the story goes for her that she was discovered by a high school teacher who saw her running to catch a train, told her that she should uh, pick up running. And in fact, the uh, Olympic final was only her fourth official race in her career. So (laughs) she picked it up very quickly. And uh, she is quoted as saying once that uh, sometimes I think about how lucky I was that he saw me that day uh, while she was trying to catch the train. Uh, She had a couple of hiccups along the way. Apparently, she had two left shoes with her as she arrived to the track for that final and needed to find a right shoe very, very quickly. Somehow managed to do that. And uh, there were a couple of false starts in that final as well, just adding to the pressure. But she managed to uh, keep her calm. There's another story that perhaps she wasn't actually the one to break the tape. I looked at the video for this, and it's very difficult to tell uh, what actually happened. But there was a Canadian, Fanny Rosenfeld, who was right up alongside her as they approached the uh, finishing tape. And there was just, in fact, 0.2 seconds between uh, the four runners who actually finished the race. And two of the officials thought that Robinson had broken the tape with her arms rather than her body. (gasps) So she had, in fact, gotten over the, well, maybe not gotten over the line, but she got to the tape. Nevertheless, she was uh, awarded first place and with the world record time of 12.2 seconds. And that was despite an official protest from the Canadians at the age of 16, which is incredibly impressive. Very sadly for her, she was badly injured in a plane crash then in 1931, where she suffered injuries that uh, were believed to be fatal at first. An Associated Press uh, report at the time listed her having fractures of her left leg, left arm, right hip, and possibly a skull fracture as well. However, she managed to battle her way back and uh, she continued to run because she couldn't bend one of her legs properly. She couldn't do the crouch position for the start of races, but she could still sprint. So then in 1936, she competed in the 4x100 relay uh, on the third leg because she didn't have to uh, crouch. She could just start running while standing, get the bat on and, uh, and go. And she won a gold with the USA in the 4x100 relay. What a great story that is. You mentioned that these were very well attended games. Finally, we've got a bit of commercial success. One sport that was very, very popular was football, of course. 
But by the mid-1920s, there was a bit of an issue arising with FIFA and world football in general. Up until this Games, the 1928 Games, the football tournament at the Olympics was essentially the World Championships. Um, but this was also against a backdrop of football becoming increasingly more and more professional, while the Olympics still maintained a very strict amateur-only policy. In 1926, the president of FIFA, Henri Delaunay, said, Today, international football can no longer be held within the confines of the Olympics, and many countries where professionalism is now recognised and organised cannot any longer be represented there by their best players. And one day then, Chris, before the tournament opened at the Games, in Amsterdam itself, FIFA voted to create a new football tournament, completely independent of the Olympics. And that would be the beginnings of the FIFA World Cup. Because of the confusion as to what constitutes an amateur player, there was a lot of back and forth of like asking FIFA to clarify what was going to be amateur and asking the Olympics to clarify. Some nations just decided not to take part, including Britain and Denmark. But it was still a very competitive tournament with 17 nations representing five confederations. And as I said, they were incredibly well attended. The opener between the hosts... And Uruguay was to full capacity, 40,000. And in fact, the home fans queued in uh, many more tens of thousands for tickets to the games, with local businesses taking advantage of this, setting up beer, liver, herring and chocolate stands. The perfect mix. And in a 2008 account of this in Middelvoort de Tuchmis Spenden von Amsterdam, uh, thankfully translated for me in Goldblatt's The Game, they say that when it became clear that some people uh, weren't going to get their hands on tickets, the police had to hit out with their sabres. It turned out the, that only those who queued before 9.30 on Sunday had got tickets, which is all well and good. But like, I don't really know. I don't know when the police started disbanding because it, in Goldblatt's account, it, he kind of semi-suggests that maybe this was on Monday. Mm. So like that. But then I looked up then the date because it starts on the 30th, which is a Wednesday. So like I kind of hope like there were people there in the queue for like four days <laughs> eating, eating their liver and chocolate playing cards and then getting disbanded. Uh, like, oh, yeah, sorry, no. no. I mean, surely not. I mean, no. surely not. But it's not overly really clear. But I, mean, I hope not. But like they did, like, why would they need to leave if they had beer? and liver you know what I mean yeah and the tournament itself wasn't overly dramatic you know we didn't get any of these riots or referee punch-ups or anything else that the Olympopod loves the final was held on June 10th between Uruguay and Argentina that ended 2-1 after um, extra time meaning there was a replay three days later with Uruguay winning 2-1 and of course Uruguay was awarded the first FIFA World Cup in 1930 now, we didn't talk much about the football in the last Olympic pod, which was like the, the real breakthrough for Uruguay, who kind of came out of nowhere. And at this stage, they had really established themselves and then beating Argentina in the final, uh, who were not in the last Olympics. There was only one team from South America. So really showing their dominance at that time. And as you mentioned at the beginning, they, this was like the, this was recognized as the world championship for football. So we have spoken before about the, impact that football had on the olympics as it was like one of the real uh, driving forces for money uh, because so many people were going to the games that was clear to see again because i think for the final 
They could have sold it out many times over. It was a real big deal. And that changed completely after these games because not only uh, was the World Cup then set up in 1930, uh, which was hosted and won by Uruguay, beating Argentina again in the final, but then in the 1932 games, football didn't uh, appear. And we have had football in the meantime, and it hasn't been the, the same since. Uh, the World Cup has taken over as the real pinnacle of the sport and uh, was the main reason why you decided to boot it out of our Olympics yeah. uh, in the last Olympics. Famously out at the Olympics now, since I kicked it out. This is a, really a farewell to football and the Olympics going hand in hand in terms of the, the peak of the sport. Another team sport which was huge draw for the Dutch people, a sport they didn't really know they liked until the games took place, and that was hockey. Enter the Indian hockey team. And they uh, took their very first uh, gold medal in field hockey, uh, beginning a streak of six consecutive gold medals in the sport. So this was really the beginning of uh, their dominance, and they really were dominant. I think in the entire tournament, they did not concede one single goal. Uh, A goalkeeper at the time, who we'll speak a bit more about, future games I think but in the the course of his Olympic career only conceded three goals so they were really uh, really dominant and uh, they became the darlings of the Dutch crowd at these Olympics didn't really know what the sport was to begin with but it became a craze in Amsterdam and the final was the hottest ticket in town and the Indians beat the Dutch in the final as well 3-0 And there was one man in particular playing in the field, Dian Chand, who seemed to be in a league of his own because he scored 14 goals in that tournament. And the next best was, I didn't write it down, I think the next best was just five goals. Yeah. So he really was incredibly dominant. And the Indian hockey team began a dynasty. We saw India play, didn't we, Chris? Many years later. We did. Many, many years later, we saw India play in Rio, uh, the opening game for India and Ireland in the Olympic hockey tournament on a sweltering day in Rio, I think it's fair to say. But we had a great time. We met met some Indians at the stadium uh, on the way to the stadium, right? Yeah, we got Indian uh, flags, which I, I mean, we were there to support Ireland, but we got uh, some sort of like Indian uh, paper headbands to say that we supported yes. India. And very fitting because the like the colours are the exact same. Exactly. So it's okay. And it was a very close match. It was 3-2. It was. It was a good game. Uh, we managed to find the Irish crowd then uh, for the game, which I think were... Probably mostly like friends and families of the players. Yeah. Um, then a few mad hockey heads. Uh, and this is a big deal, of course, because uh, Ireland never qualified teams for the Olympic Games. But as I mentioned before, it was a very, very hot day. It and hot it day. was a double header. So there was a game between Australia and New Zealand afterwards. But the and the hockey arena was kind of far away from everything else in that cluster of venues. So we didn't really have anywhere to go. And it was also like it was, as you say, like it was the first day. So like everyone was a little bit confused, including the organizers in terms of transport. And what to give people as well. And what to give people, yeah, for refreshments. So yeah, and then in between, as you said, it was a double header. So we went for a bit of a saunter just to stretch our legs. And we saw a large cart. 
And we decided to have a look inside the cart and inside the cart was lots of very cold beers. We had received free water and now we were receiving free beer. That's how it works, right? So, I mean, like in fairness, there was this moral dilemma while we looked at each other. We were like, is this free beer? And then we were like, it must be free beer because it's left unattended right beside the stadium but there's nobody else here this must just be free beer so we took some free beer and like we then went okay that's fine we're just going to take our free beer and bring it over here and we took some photos with our free beer and just at that moment suddenly a really large group of Indian supporters came by and they saw us with our beer beside the beer cart and they were like oh this must be free beer because here are two Irish people drinking the beer and like this was a really big group so they each went in and you know took one of their beers and went off and um, about five minutes later we saw the beer man come back looking very forlornly at his empty cart of beer and we felt so bad about it that Ruth took a picture of him (laughs) I I needed to immortalise my shame interesting happen in our sinky pool yes we had the end of an era for one of the great swimmers of 1924 and that was johnny weissmuller tarzan and we spoke about him quite a bit uh he won two more gold medals in the swimming an individual gold in the men's 100 meter freestyle and he won a team gold in the 4 by 200 meter freestyle relay it was also the uh, final olympics for Pavo Nurmi, who we've spoken an awful lot about in the last couple of episodes, he won his ninth and final gold medal in the 10,000 meter race, which I'm sure you'll all remember is the one race he did not compete in in the previous Olympics. So he finally got to compete in the 10,000 four years later, and he won the gold in that. He also won a silver in the 3,000 meter steeplechase, which was a Finnish clean sweep. So gold, silver, and bronze all to Finland there. And Nurmi won a silver in the 5K as well, with Vile Ritola winning that one, another Finn. And he would have liked to compete uh, four years later in 1932, but at this stage, it was very clear that he was no longer an amateur because he uh, had been doing so many exhibition races where he was, I don't know, racing against bears or racing against uh, <laughs> relay teams of of athletes. And uh, yeah, he was clearly a professional at that point. So 28 was his swan song. Chris, did you just in- invent that or was there once a race against a bear? Because like, you can't get my hopes up like that. I, I did invent that, yes. Oh no! <laughs> Sorry. You mentioned um, our Tarzan, but there was another Tarzan, literally. What? In, this, in the pool, Clarence Crab. Which is like not like not the greatest name. What a Clarence terrible name! Crab. That is a bad name. Yeah. He finished third in the fifteen hundred meter freestyle, so you know. But he would also go to Hollywood, and he would also become the new Tarzan. So it just seems like the pool really attracts Tarzans. By the way, his his Hollywood name was Buster Crab, which is a bit yeah, nicer which, than like, Clarence Crab. It is like like, but maybe go for like I don't know. Wait, I'm, I'm being put on the spot, but I want a better name for him. Uh, Buster Hoover. I like that name. Buster Hoover. Buster Move. <laughs> Chris, did, did Ireland do okay in this one? Like, we've talked about India, we've talked about Finland. What about Ireland? Did we do good? 
Well, after the glory of Ireland's two medals in the art competitions four years previous, <laughs> now we got our first ever real medal. Way! As an independent nature. As an independent nature. Pat O'Callaghan won gold in the hammer throw. He was an absolute legend at the hammer throw. He fashioned his own hammer. So he bored a hole through a a shot putt and or a shot uh, that you shot putt with usually because it's not (laughs) called a shot putt. Um, You 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 hammered a hole. Yes, exactly. You put the shot and he instead he bored a hole through the shot and he uh, filled it with a, a ball bearing core of a bicycle pedal. So he, he also set up a throwing circle in a nearby field and he trained away. Turned out he was pretty good at it, uh, won the Irish national title and had an opportunity to compete at the Olympic Games in Amsterdam. And uh, his brother, Con O'Callaghan, also qualified for the Olympics. And I believe another brother did as well, who they don't really talk about online. I think his name, I think his name was Sean, perhaps Sean O'Callaghan, because That's a good guess. all it says is that there were, the three O'Callaghan brothers paid their own fares to Amsterdam. So Pat competed in the hammer at the beginning of the final itself was in third place using his own hammer. That sounds a bit dodgy. He was yes. allowed to use his handmade hammer. Yes. Like, did any officials, like, have a look at it first to see? I'm sure they did. We've come a long way from even 1896, where, uh, if you remember, the discus had to be a particular size. So I'm pretty sure the hammer itself had to be a particular size and a particular weight. I just, I'm I'm all of a sudden a little bit suspicious. Well, the story changes here. So, I mean, strap yourself in. Okay, I'm <laughs> Because he was in third place behind a Swedish guy called Ossian Huild from Sweden. For his second throw then, he borrowed the Swede's hammer and recorded a uh, throw that was four inches longer and went into first place with it. I don't know if that was, again easier to throw or was better yeah, I, I don't Chris, know like I, I i'm just i'm really suspicious of the officials here i don't think they did a very good job of looking at everybody's hammers i don't know chris everyone has their own hammer nowadays yeah but i imagine that somebody goes round and goes wait a second this isn't a real hammer this is the shot with a bicycle chain <laughs> Uh, anyway, so that was Ireland's first gold in an athletic event as an independent nation. Uh, not to take away, of course, from Ireland's two medals in the arts competitions. No. Speaking to take of arts competitions, Ruth, they were at it again. They took the absolute piss in Amsterdam. And for those who might remember from last time, there were... A couple of events where they didn't award all the medals because clearly the people judging had no idea how gold, silver and bronze worked. Well, they didn't really learn their lesson four years later, Ruth. Guess which category was the most problematic? Was it music? It was music. (laughs) (laughs) But again, Chris, like we don't know. We haven't heard the entrance. Maybe the entrance were really bad. Perhaps. And maybe one day... A loyal listener will source all of the musical entries to one of these Olympics and we can judge for ourselves. Uh, in this Olympic Games, there were three separate music categories. The last one, they couldn't even pick any medals for one category. Like, 
Why would you suddenly go, oh, do you know what? We can definitely handle three. Uh, they were... Um, ambitious. Ambitious. And this time, we had one bronze medal <laughs> awarded <laughs> within the three categories. And that went to Denmark's Rudolf Simonsen for a symphony number two, Hellas, in the orchestra category. Where were the other two categories? No idea. Uh, <laughs> There were no medals awarded. I don't care. <laughs> you don't care. Fine. There was also, before I leave the art category, um, the, in the Dramatic Works Literature Competition, there was Ooh. only a silver medal awarded, which I find even more odd. Okay, you only award a gold or only award a bronze, but to award the one in the middle and not the other two, I mean, so, so this piece of work isn't very good it isn't terrible it's quite okay but not that good i will give a silver maybe maybe they had like a really stringent like point system it was like doing an exam is it like an a plus yeah. or is it a b and it was very much a b performance but we did see something similar in the gymnastics uh previously where a bunch of people got over a certain mark and they were all technically gold medalists. Yeah. Maybe, maybe maybe this is where I came yeah. from. Yeah. Um, so in this dramatic works literature competition, uh, Loro de Bossi of Italy got a silver for his piece Icarus. This is going back a long way to the start of this Olympopod. But just when you were talking about the awarding of medals, something that did strike me in the football, because uh, you might remember I said it... Uh, after the first final, it was 2-all. Now, we've seen in a couple of different sports in past Olympics, if you don't win, then that's fine. You just, there is no gold or silver. We're oh, given wow. a bronze. That would have been a good thing to do. Yeah. It's like, no, mm. you, you, no, no one won. Argentina, Uruguay, get out of here. Pretty sure they enjoyed all the money that the spectators were paying to go to the replay. Sure. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Think that, I think that's the slight difference yeah, okay. between football and wrestling in this case. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you mentioned wrestling, uh, anything in the combat sports? Oh, yes, because wherever you have art taking the piss, you also have boxing taking the piss. And in this case, it was all about the judging. And um, well, there was like, a great quote. That has not yeah, changed. True. Yeah, it hasn't. It has not changed. And there was a great quote here from uh, Czech uh, Jan Harmanek, who said, there was more fighting outside than inside the ring. And outside the ring, the police came off best. <laughs> so was, uh, yeah, a few dodgy uh, decisions here. Um, one in particular involving John Daly of the USA, a guy who was... Uh, seemingly very impressive on his run to the semi-finals and out of nowhere lost the verdict to a South African fighter Harry Isaacs uh, there was shouting and booing from American fans they started to charge their way to the ring because of their uh, displeasure with the results uh, finally they were quieted by the Amsterdam police now take my previous quote into mind there the judges then announced that they had made a mistake one of them simply thought one guy was the other guy. Yeah, that, that happens a lot, I've heard. <laughs> it was, in fact, John Daly who had beaten Isaacs. And the South, Af South Africans appealed, but the decision was upheld. There was one popular controversial decision in Amsterdam, though. 
And that was the gold medal victory for uh, Bep van Cleveren from the Netherlands, of course. Uh, he was in the featherweight division. Uh, he was one of the most popular of the boxing tournament and perhaps of the entire games. He had beaten a Spaniard and a British guy en route to facing Harry Devine of the USA in the semi-final. Van Cleveren started and finished the fight quite strongly and uh, he was quite a hard puncher as well so that and his work rate saw him through to the final where Argentina's Victor Peralta lay in wait. And although reports do vary who actually deserved the victory, who do you think it went to Ruth? Um, I mean, that's a hard one. Like, who who would you go for? Um, did, did they give it to the Argentine? No, uh, they gave it to Van Cleveren. Oh. Uh, and there was um, yeah, a bit of outrage from the Argentine support. But thankfully, the helpful Dutch police were there to calm <laughs> the disturbances which went on for some time. <laughs> uh, in the aftermath, Van Cleveren went professional. And he had a 27-year career, which is incredible. He fought in four different continents, even served in the Dutch army as World War II broke out, retired eventually at the age of 41. But that was just temporary. He resumed then at the age of 47. (laughs) (laughs) He's the only Dutch boxer to have ever won an Olympic gold. And so he became a bit of a legendary figure. There's a statue of him in a fighting pose erected in his hometown of Rotterdam. And in 2007, he was voted the greatest Rotterdammer of all time beating Erasmus. <laughs> but, but what's Erasmus done lately? That's what I want to know. Exactly. What Olympic goals has Erasmus brought Nerd. the Netherlands? Get out of here. We've talked very little about the rowing, Chris. And we're not really going to start today on this Olympopod. But I do just want to mention in passing, it was very well attended. Um, at least 10,000 at some events, plus some cows and sheep. Um, and I came across this lovely little account on the gold medal men's eights final between the USA and Britain, which saw Team USA win by half a boat length. And some thought this win was in large part thanks to their uh, coxswain, Don Blessing, who motivated his team, according to the New York Times, with one of the greatest performances of demoniacal howling ever heard on a terrestrial planet. He gave the impression of a terrier suddenly gone mad, but such language and what a vocabulary. (laughs) In comparison, the British guy was reported to have just said, up, up, up. Oh, I love that. That's very contrasting to the only thing in rowing that I read. Go on. Which was a very sweet One. Uh, That was the story of uh, Henry Pierce. He was in the single skulls and in the quarterfinal, at the midway point, he stopped. Okay. Because he saw that there was a family of ducks swimming dangerously towards his (laughs) boat. So he momentarily stopped, allowed the mother duck and her ducklings to pass, and then continued, got his rhythm back, and he won. Okay, so fair play. Now, had he lost, I think I would have taken uh, a different uh, view of this. But given that he won, that's fine. It's more just like I've seen ducklings survive an awful lot, like falling down waterfalls and they're absolutely fine. I bet they would have got away fierce quick. Uh, Well, Um, you know, he didn't take that chance and fair play. No, he didn't. He didn't. But as I said, because he won, I'm okay with it. He won gold as well in the end. So uh, a true champion, a champion of the animals and a champion of rowing. He He had the blessing of the ducks. 
Ruth, we have, um, a, as we've mentioned before, huge amount of women and more women's events than ever before. So this time, I'm going to throw the question to you. Which Olympic event would you have won in 1928? Um, Corfball. Ah, the demonstration sport of Corfball. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what Corfball is, but I think I, I'll, I'll, give it a, I'll give it a... I'm not saying I'm going to win, but like I'm going to demonstrate it and I'm going to demonstrate it with some style. <laughs> Do you want to guess what Corfball is? Does it have like a weird sort of paddle hand? Uh, No. Okay, never mind. <laughs> if, uh, if I invented Corfball, it would. But anyway, okay, tell me about uh, the, the Dutch uh, um, equivalent or whatever. Corfball is a very Dutch sport, which is basically just netball. Okay. <laughs> you know? Uh, it's a very... Um, it's a ball sport which has similarities to netball and basketball. So the idea is you throw a ball into to a netless basket, which is mounted on a pole. Okay, a hoop. So, so it's it's basically like it's a hoop. yeah, like a hoop. It's it's, yeah. it's like it's like netball, but I think it's mixed always now. Like oh, it's uh, okay. men and women. Yeah, corfball consists of eight players: four female and four male. So you could have been part of a corfball team. Okay, so no, I like. But the thing is, Chris, like I'm really bad at like throwing stuff at places. So no, yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm no. I'll I'll um. I'll sneak into one of the men's cycling events um, and on my blue bike. And yeah, like I'm, I, I'm not saying I'm going to win, but like I'm going to finish. I, I think I mentioned in the last pod, I got some very reinforced cycle pants recently. So as long as I can bring them with me, I'll be fine. You'll be ahead of your time. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and uh, speaking of being ahead of our time, I think it's... Uh time to uh, further enhance the olympic program i believe is it my turn today it's your turn okay so on this occasion for sports swap i am going to go for an event within a sport and i'm okay, going to nitpick at track and field Again, as we have done on a few occasions. Chris, like, be so careful. We we have we have done a lot to the track and field. Like we, have. we need to be careful here. I think the track and field community are going to uh like this one. Okay. And I've just doubted myself because it's such a good idea that maybe has it already been accepted? I think this has been spoken about as potentially making a comeback in a future Olympics, but I'm going to make the swap right now. First of all, what I'm taking out, Ruth, is the 3,000 meter steeplechase. Chris, but it's like, it's like, you don't have to watch at all. And it's like watching people if they were horses. Well, that kind of brings me to its replacement, Ruth. Okay. Cross country is yes, coming okay, in. Yeah, that's fine. Cross yeah. country running yeah. is coming in. Yeah. And maybe not cross country running as we know it now, because cross country uh, running as we know it now is basically running on grass or mud. But yeah. let's put in some steep, like let's put in some uh, steeplechase elements to it. Let's put in a water jump. Let's yeah. put in a couple more jumps in there. Let's put and, in a tiger. Uh, 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 maybe. I don't know. There, there could be just, <laughs> I just feel like maybe just something, a bit of risk, but like, I don't know, like obviously not real animals because we can't do that, but like a little bit how we used to have the um, no. deer hunt. So there, there could be like, I don't know, 
a fake tiger that kind of jumps out. I I, I don't know. I'm like in a haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking, Chris. <laughs> yeah. This is our first um, pod since Halloween, maybe. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. Okay, sorry. Um, I apologize. I I digressed. <laughs> I digressed a lot. It's very late. I look. Uh, I I think cross country would be a great addition. I believe the IAAF are making pushes to get it back in. I think it would be a good part of the Olympic Games, and also as a little bit of a testament to uh, the end of Pavo Nermi's career. Oh, yeah. A man who was so great, uh, also at the cross country, and uh, the man, in fact, who at the last Olympic Games in 1924, while the cross country was taken out of the program because it was so brutal, he was the one who made it look so easy. (laughs) And so, Pavo Nermi, bringing in the cross country for you. So, next we're going to America. We are! We're back to America because it worked so well last time. We're going to the glitz and glamour of L.A. 1932. And before we do that, I'm going to ask you, the listeners, to do something because uh, we're getting a lot of great feedback from all of you uh, for the episode so far. So glad you're enjoying it. Now it's your turn to force some other people to listen because we need more people like you. We need to uh, create some more uh, Olympic-obsessed people. Who knows? They, They don't even need to like sports. They will... After listening to this, because is this really about sport? I don't know. Let's find out. When we go to LA 1932. 